Hello and welcome back to another episode of the All Wire Podcast. I'm your host, Derek Oswald, and today we are joined by none other than Tim Foreman, bassist of the iconic rock band Switchfoot. In this episode, we're going to uncover the secrets behind their enduring success, exploring their inspirations, challenges, and milestones that have shaped their career. We'll dive into the stories behind their chart-topping 2003 record, The Beautiful Letdown, unpacking the emotions, experiences, and universal themes that have made their songs resonate with so many people. So buckle up and get ready for another episode of the Altwire Podcast. The Altwire Podcast starts now. Thank you so much for joining us today, Tim. How you doing? I'm doing great. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Thank you so much. Looking back on the 20th anniversary of the beautiful letdown, it's hard to believe that it's been 20 years since I first heard Meant to Live. That's insane. But what a timeless song from a timeless album. What memories come to mind from that time in your career? Wow, so many memories. I was talking about this the other day with a friend of mine that when you're you're younger, there's kind of a wastefulness that is also beautiful. You know, there's all, so that was a time that was really exciting for us. Those songs took us all over the world. And I think through traveling, I've grown to appreciate travel more since then and going to other places and stuff. But um, at the time, you know, being barely 20, the things that I was excited about were pretty simple, you know, like um, finding a good, a good curb to skate, you know what I mean? And just being with my best friends and getting to play these songs. And looking back, we got some pretty wild experiences for a 20-year-old to absorb. But, um, you know, it was the only version I had of being young and 20. And um, it, was a, it was a pretty great, beautiful, exciting time. Now, 20 years later, what makes this particular album special for you? What inspired you guys to go ahead and re-record the album? Yeah, it's like you said, it's a special album for us. We've been taking these songs all over the world or they've been taking us all over the world for 20 years. And uh, I'm really thankful that the songs that really blew up for us, songs like Dare to Move, Meant to Live, they still mean a lot to us. You know, these are songs that are very special and personal to us. And they've only grown with the telling. They've only grown with the memories that we've attached to them for 20 years. You know, so these are songs that were written in a bedroom at 2 a.m. trying to figure out life. And now they have all these other stories and memories attached to them. People coming up to us after shows telling us, this was the song that played at my wedding. This is the song that came on the radio when I was about to kill myself. This is this, you know, just amazing wild stories that are much bigger than uh, four surfers from San Diego playing rock and roll. And so I think the songs have grown with us and we're very thankful that we still get to play songs that, that mean a lot to us. Now, re-records sometimes, you know, provide an opportunity to change things that you maybe didn't like about the original version. Was there anything about the original record that the band was maybe eager to update and improve upon with these re-records? Yeah, it was a really um, kind of uh, something we talked about quite a bit. I think as, as artists, you're always trying to create something new. And the idea of recreating something you've done before is always less appealing. But at the same time, you know, I think we landed on trying to find versions of these songs that are, are true to the original with just little updates where we saw the opportunity. Um, you know, we've been playing these songs for a while, some of these songs more than others. And there's little updates that we've done along the way that felt like they were still very much in the character and spirit of the original. You know, it's funny, like growing up, 
you're always learning something new and you're always forgetting something. And this was a chance to kind of hold the two ends of that intention and speak into something that you did a while ago with some new things that you've learned, but then also go back and pick up a few things that you dropped along the way. And I think one of the, um, the big updates of the new version, though, that was apparent right off the bat was just how much John has grown as a singer. He was just kind of finding himself as a singer when we made that album. And there's a special quality to that. His voice has only grown since then. And it was great to kind of hear that on these new versions. Definitely. And that's something I noticed too, listening through it. I mean, they sound just as timeless as the original record did, but you're absolutely right. One of the things that is just so much stronger is John's voice. It sounds so, so good on that record. I'm curious though, what did the early days look like? I think you guys were originally called Chin Up, right? What was the story behind that name? Yeah, we started as a three-piece. I was still in high school. John and Chad were in college. And we were playing music because it was fun. You know, I don't think any of us saw music as a viable career path. None of the bands that we grew up idolizing in our scene were ever able to do it as a full-time job. These are bands that came up in the San Diego scene and they're playing in backyards and garages and it's a very DIY scene that we come from. And so, you know, I, I think that was the version of music that was modeled for us. And so we were following that path of playing music because we loved it and playing it wherever we got asked to play it, whether it was a coffee shop or a bar or a church that we just loved playing music together. And, um, uh, so we didn't give the the name a lot of thought. We, uh, we had a, a kind of a, a best friend amongst our group. He wasn't in the band, but he almost was just because he was like our spirit animal, our mascot. Uh, his name Willis Chin. He was just uh, one of those guys that was always making us laugh and, um, you know, one of, one of the best guys you'll ever meet. And so, you know, it was kind of a lighthearted way to, to throw him into the, the band name. He was at all the shows anyways. And then um, when we actually got a, a record deal, an indie record deal, which was completely surprising to us, we decided maybe let's think a little harder about our name. And so we switched the name to Switchfoot, but um, we named our first album The Legend of Chin and put a bunch of Willis Chin's baby photos and childhood photos in the album. Now, have you guys ever thought about maybe revisiting some songs from those earlier albums and updating them the same way you did with The Beautiful Letdown? Yeah, I'm not sure. We're still fresh off of this experience and um, it was definitely enjoyable, but it was also a pretty big challenge. It was a pretty big undertaking to really make sure that we were doing the original version justice. I think the worst thing in the world to do would be to spend a year working on something and have people not like it as much as the original. You know, we put a lot of thought and effort into it. And uh, I think we're excited about, you know, our next endeavor being something new, some, uh, working on some new songs. Who knows if there's more re-records in our future? Uh, probably too early to say at this point. Now, after those first three albums, where was the band at mentally when you guys began writing that fourth album? What was the mentality going into writing that record? I think we all thought that it was our last record. Most of the bands that we grew up watching and going to shows, they never even made a third record. It seemed like it was one or two records and done. And we had made three and there had been some exciting things that happened along the way. But at the same time, we were barely able to sell, you know, a hundred tickets and 
a few markets following our third album. And so it wasn't exactly, it was an exciting thing when you're 18 or 19 years old, but not exactly like a sustainable career, you know? So it's kind of that point in life where our drummer Chad had just had a kid and it's that, you know, okay, what does the next 10 years of our lives look like type of questions that we were asking ourselves. And so we went into the studio um, to make one more album and it wasn't, it wasn't even with the goal of, you know, let's see if we can make this last forever. It was just, let's see if we can make the record that we have always wanted to make so that there's no regrets so that, you know, when we move on to whatever's next in our lives, we look back at this album and that's the album that we always wanted to make, you know, something that we're just completely proud of and captures who we are right now. And, um, so we did that, uh, without a label, we recorded it in 17 days, including mixing, which is extremely fast with a producer named John Fields that we had just met and we did it up in LA. And, uh, you know, it was so exciting to work at that fast pace. You know, we really thrive off of that. We had a bunch of stations built in the studio and we were just literally running from station to station. Drums, bass, guitars. And after 17 days, we had a complete album recorded, mixed. And we started getting calls from major labels that had caught wind of the album. And everything moved quickly for a moment. It was kind of surreal to suddenly be having conversations with major labels, which was something that in those days, that was like the holy grail. Very few bands, especially from San Diego, were ever in those conversations. And uh, so, you know, we ended up siding with Columbia Records and we felt like uh, we had somehow just won the lottery. And they flew us to New York to play for kind of the, all the big wigs at the label. And we're flying high at this point. We can't believe that this is happening. And uh, halfway through our second song, the head of the label walks out and says, uh, I don't hear any hits. Why do we keep signing this, this garbage and dropped us. And the song he walked out on was, a, was a song called Dare to Move. It's one of your biggest songs. Yeah. It was this real existential moment of like, okay, that's what he thinks. That's his opinion. What's our opinion? What do we think of these songs? What do we think of this record? Now we're back to, uh, you know, where we've always been, which is an indie band without a major label. And um, uh, so we decided to put it out anyways on an indie label. And then, uh, you know, a couple million albums later, Columbia decided to to pick the album back up because it was still in their system under contract. And um, I'm really thankful for that whole experience. It, um, it really kind of galvanized us as a band, forced us to get our heads right. Because I think any creative endeavor, there's going to be people that get it and people that don't. And it can be really cart before the horse to be making music that you hope someone else will like when you have no idea. The best and truest thing you can do as an artist is to make music that resonates with you. I think we, we did exactly what we set out to do with that album. We made an album that we were proud of. And, and I'm just really thankful that here we are 20 years later talking about you know, how that album went around the world and ended up in a lot of people's ears.
And I think what really helped with that around that time was the soundtrack for A Walk to Remember. Your music played a really huge role in that film. What are your memories from that time on collaborating on the soundtrack? Yeah, as a band, there's things that come in and out of your life that are exciting. And it's hard to know in the moment what are the things that are going to move the needle or resonate, you know, on a larger scale. And that was one of those things. Mandy Moore was an up and coming singer and actress, actor, and has become really incredible at both through the years. But at the time she was just coming up. I don't think any of us had any idea the impact that film was going to have. We'd been in other films and TV shows before. And so, so yeah, when that opportunity came, you know, it was, it was exciting and they kept adding more and more of our songs. It started with one song, Only Hope, and ended up with, I think, five of our songs on the soundtrack. And, um, you know, it was one of those surreal experiences that uh, you, we had no idea the impact that it was going to have, you know, that it really opened the door for a lot of people to our music, particularly around the world. There's places like Philippines that we would have never been if it wasn't for that movie, where that movie, you know, had a really big impact over there and opened doors to all sorts of international markets that we would have never visited otherwise. And yeah, really thankful that that happened. I think that was a, a great example of music being used for a common purpose. Sometimes you see music as a fish out of water in like a truck commercial or something, and it's doesn't really resonate with what the song was written about. But, I, you know, that was a really um, heartfelt movie. And I think a lot of the, the songs really resonated with the, the story arc. And yeah, I like the film. Yeah. And Only Hope is at such a pivotal point in the movie. It's when the male lead falls in love with the female lead in the movie because she sings it in the play. And it's just a central part of the film. And it's your guy's song, which is just absolutely insane. You mentioned something about the Philippines, which actually brought me to a question I wanted to ask you. Theology and philosophy feel like core themes for Switchfoot. How has traveling and performing in different parts of the world shaped your perspective as musicians? How has it shaped your theological and philosophical perspectives? Yeah, I love traveling. When you do something a lot, you either get really jaded and cynical about it or you love it more and more. And I, I'm thankful that Travel is one of those things for me that I'm going to be a lifelong traveler, whether I'm playing music or not. I just love seeing other places, meeting new people, new cultures, new languages. There's something intoxicating about that to me, feeling a sense of smallness in a big place and also a sense of belonging in uh, somewhere you've never been. You know, those two polar opposites are what is at play when you travel. And I think traveling broadens your perspective, gets you outside of the uh, things that feel important in our little bubbles. And you, you see a bigger picture and a bigger story. And all of that has been very central to the musical journey we've been on too. And this, the songs we write. And um, I think one of the, the biggest goals we've always had in our music is to bring people together from different walks of life from different beliefs and to find a commonality. We're much more interested in what we have in common than what we have, than the differences that we have. And that's something that you get with travel. And that certainly has, we've brought that into our music along the way. 
Now, when you say that, traveling the world and experiencing the love and support of so many different cultures has enriched your spirituality and faith? And if so, how so? Yeah, absolutely. I think as a believer, I, to travel the world and see what that looks like in Bangladesh, what that looks like, what it means to be a, a believer in Australia, in South Africa, in Mexico. I think it broadens your perspective of the journey of faith that, that I'm on, that we're all on, and that it can... You know, a lot of times we mistake culture for faith and there's cultural differences, but at, at its core, keeping the main thing is something that I think traveling and seeing how that is lived out in other places, it becomes evident. Now, switching gears a little bit, creative differences are pretty much inevitable when it comes to throwing a bunch of musicians in a small room. Were there any times over the years when working on either the Beautiful Letdown or other albums where you guys had disagreements? And if so, what do you feel are the best ways to overcome conflict in a band? I do believe that some element of conflict is necessary for good art. I think, yeah, you may write a song or two that somehow sidesteps conflict. But I think as a body of work, as a career, conflict is how we grow. We don't grow through they're easy experiences. We grow through struggle. And within a band, the conflict is necessary to elevating anyone's ideas. That's why you form a band. That's certainly part of why you form a band is you, you need other opinions. You know, I think that's what makes life interesting is people that disagree with you, you know? And so I think we've learned to respect the conflict. Whereas maybe in the early days, yeah, we have brothers in the band, my brother and I, We've, there's always going to be conflict. We've refined with conflict over years and years of living together. And, um, and we've learned to respect it. You know, I think when we started this band, we weren't as good at it. And I think we've realized that if there's friction, if I have an idea and John has an idea and they're differing points of views, that means that there's something better that we haven't found yet. And, and you know, it also means that we both care. I think the moment there's no conflict, it means usually that one of us has just checked out, which is the worst thing that could ever happen to any band, to uh, any group of people that are trying to do something that's great and trying to grow. There's, there's going to be conflict. You're going to be pushing each other. Sometimes that growth is painful and there's something better waiting on the other side of it. And it is special for you to be in a band with your brother. Families rarely get their due appreciation for enduring the, you know, the absence of their loved ones while we, the audience, benefit from their presence on tour. How have you balanced your personal life with the demands of being in a high-profile rock band? And how would you say these demands have kind of changed over the years? Yeah, it's interesting. I think it's been important for John and I to have things that we share outside of the band. And I think that's not just true for John and I. That's certainly within the three of us who have been on this journey since the beginning, John, Chad, and I, having surfing as something that we all love to do that has very little to do with Switchfoot has been something that's kept us together. You know, when we're not on tour, we're still meeting up most mornings to go for a surf before we go into the studio to work on anything. And I, th I think, you know, having that as an anchor point that's outside of 
the um, bizarre reality of the stage and being in a rock band has been very grounding for us. And speaking of family, your son Jet is extremely talented. What has it been like watching him grow as a musician and follow in your footsteps? When did you first realize he had that musical talent? Yeah, well, thank you. I definitely agree. I'm a proud dad. Um, it's been interesting because, you know, he's been on, coming on tour with me since he was, I started bringing him when he was four years old, grabbing a sleeping bag and throwing him on the tour bus. And, and we always have had the best times on tour together, but he was really not interested in the music at all. It was all about, can we get through sound check and um, so we can go out and have adventures and go explore. And, and then he'd fall asleep when the show happened. It was much more about the adventures that we would have while we're on tour than it was about the music. And um, about maybe two years ago, he really discovered his own love for music in a big way, you know, and started writing these songs. And I was just blown away by how good the songs were. He didn't really know a lot about music. He didn't have a lot of training because he had just not been interested in that. We tried a few times over the years and my kids have taught me anything. Timing is everything. And, you know, I think every kid's different, but for my kids trying to force surfing or music or any of my passions on them doesn't work as well as kind of letting them be themselves and find the things they're passionate about. And then reinforcing and encouraging the things that they're excited about. So when I just, you know, when he discovered his own passion for music, kind of a separate from me and Switchfoot and all the times that he'd been on tour with us, that was a really special thing, you know, to kind of see it become his. Now, do you guys ever collaborate? Do you help him with songwriting or is he pretty much contained in his own little bubble? I always tell him that the ideas he'll come up with are way better than mine. You know, he, he will ask me for an opinion here or there or to help him kind of produce a song that's already pretty far along to get it to the finish line. And, and I'm always happy to, honored to jump in. But I like to see him go as far as he can first because I really like the way his brain works. It's funny too, because sometimes when you listen to the son of a musician, you'll notice they're following in their father's footsteps. It sounds similar. His music couldn't be much more different from Switchfoot if you tried. You know, it's a lot more like one thing I heard almost had disco elements in it. You guys have kind of had some dancier songs, but, you know, you've, I've always considered you guys to be more like a rock band. So it's fun to see how he's probably inspired by his dad, but he's not copying his dad, which I think is cool. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, he's his own person. And um, he's turning me on to new artists all the time that he's listening to. and. He's in that, that time of life where you're just, you're listening to music constantly. You're passing music from your friend to your friends. And uh, it's great to see him just expand every day. Since we're on a lighthearted kick here, one of the things that I feel is the easiest way to keep the heart and soul healthy is through laughter. If you can think back over your long career at Switchfoot, what are some of your funniest memories with the band? <laughs> yeah. There's, there's quite a few. The first one that came to mind just now was our first tour post-COVID. It was very indicative of the whole post-COVID experience now that I, I think back to it. Um, you know, it's just kind of cathartic. Here we go. We're coming out of this dark, long, dark tunnel. And now we're, we're back together again. And we're, here we go. We're walking on stage. And so it's our very first night of tour. 
uh, first tour post COVID and I'm walking on stage and we had told our lighting guy to, to keep it real dark. It was so dark. And we had, uh, I, I'd forgotten we had added another riser to our stage set. So I wasn't used to where it was. And I walked straight into the, the corner of the riser and did like a Superman. Somehow I stayed on my feet, but my shin got like a big hole in it. It um, bled through my sock and my pants had like a blood stain on them um, by the end of the show, you know. But that was how the, the first show started was with me just falling right across the stage. And, uh, you know, it's indicative of the false starts that we had as a society coming back from that, that strange and interesting time. So it wasn't all, we're back. <laughs> there was some, some false starts along the way. I swear to God, every, probably every two weeks, I find another black and blue on my leg that I don't know where I got it from. Probably because I walked into the corner of the bed frame or something. I'm always getting hurt. There you go. So I think it's funny. I'm, I'm just glad that it wasn't worse. I'm glad you didn't fall off the stage. I got a good chip out off my base too. I like took a, like a splinter off of the corner of my base. And I love those things. My, my bases at this point, the ones I've brought on tour, they all are dented and bruised and dinged up. And I think that's how instruments should be. You know, they, they've got stories to tell. And so now whenever I see that dent in the corner of my base, I, it, it gives me a little chuckle. And how has your base setup changed over the years? What are some of your favorite additions to your gear? Well, it's been fun. The re-recording of the Beautiful Letdown kind of brought me back to falling in love with the bass that I hadn't played since then. It's an old uh, music man. And I don't know why I ever stopped playing them. They're great basses and uh, really unique sound. So in preparing for this Beautiful Letdown tour, I've been playing it a lot more. I'm going to play it tonight. And uh, I think, uh, yeah, it'll be my main bass, you know, for this tour coming up, which is fun because it's a bass I haven't played in 20 years. And I have a fellow bassist as well. So yes, Stingrays are very near and dear to my heart. But it's funny, like you talk about, you look at a certain bass guitar or something that happened to like a chip on it and it brings back memories. One of my favorite bass guitars that I have, it's a Fender. And I say that in air quotes because it's one of those that are, you know, one of the uh, knockoffs. But what I like about it is I got it used at an auction. It's completely made of wood. It has a natural wood finish, but there's little cigarette burns all over it. It's the most janky looking bass, but the character and sound of it is beautiful. But I just laugh every time I see it because that poor bass was through the ringer by whoever had it before. <laughs> you abused it with cigarettes and everything. So it's just funny when you said that about the chip and the bass, it made me think about that. So what is one of the most memorable fan experiences you had? Because you guys have met so many different fans over the years. What is one of the most memorable experiences of a fan that stood out to you? I think something that makes our band unique is we really embrace the chaos of live music, that anything could happen. We make a different set list every night and we rarely follow that set list when we get on stage because the crowd is, they're equal participants in they're co-creators in the evening, right? And so um, I'm thinking back to the first time that I remember someone holding up a sign asking if they could come play a song with us. It would have been about 20 years ago. We were, it was definitely when we were touring the beautiful Let Down. And it was in Little Rock, Arkansas. And there was a, a kid, it looked like he might have been 10, maybe 12 years old, really little kid, 
I'm holding up a sign. Can I play Meant to Live with you? And so John brought him up and with the guitar strap, I mean, he was like half our height. With the guitar strap, the guitar is like basically hitting the ground. This is, to my knowledge, the first time we've done this. So I, I just have no idea how this is going to go. And then he launches into the riff by himself and just absolutely slayed it. Like, I don't even know how his fingers could do those bends on, on that guitar that was so huge on him, but he crushed it. And the crowd just went absolutely nuts. And uh, we've since met him a few times at other shows. You know, now he's, he's obviously full grown and uh, shreds of the guitar. Really cool dude. But it was, it's cool to have that memory of the first time uh, that we had ever invited someone on stage. And since then we've had a lot of those experiences, some of my favorite moments on stage, you know, and it doesn't always go as well as you hope it would. But that's, I think that's part of what we love of live music is uh, it's not supposed to be perfect. It's supposed to be human and dangerous and there should be an element of risk involved, you know, and you get to the end of the song and we all as a on stage and off, we all feel like we were a part of something that will never happen again. I love it when bands do that. I think it's one of the most magical things having a fan come up on stage and perform. One of my favorite instances of that is actually a viral video a couple of years back. Logic brought like this 10-year-old kid onto the stage to rap along with him. And it was the cutest thing because some of Logic's songs are parental advisory. So the particular song that this kid was going to rap along to did have some inappropriate language. And it was the cutest thing. Before launching into it, he goes, he, he shouts to his mom in the crowd, can I say those words? <laughs> so cute. But actually, Beautiful Letdown is not the only thing that's soon to celebrate its 20th anniversary. Roam is soon to be 20 years old as well. Are there any plans in the works for that? Yeah, um, I, that's another one of those that I really can't believe it's been 20 years. And I can't believe how that event has grown. It started with a simple idea. We were on a flight back from Australia missing our hometown. And we just decided, what if we threw a party on the beach, surf contest, and raising money for at-risk and homeless youth in our community? And the music part of it was kind of almost an afterthought. It was, it was mainly a surf contest that first year, which was hearkening back to some of our earliest memories at that beach in the summertime. We'd ride our bikes down there and uh, at Moonlight Beach uh, with some friends. And we'd throw $5 into a hat and we'd judge each other and have our own surf contest. The winner take all kind of thing. I never won, by the way. But this was like, okay, well, let's do that. Only instead of someone taking home the hat at the end of the day, let's give it to uh, the kids in our community, the charities that are supporting these kids. And I think we were young enough and dumb enough to think that it would work, that it actually did. And it's just grown to be this, this huge event that the whole community has wrapped their arms around and makes me really proud of, of my hometown and the, the love and support that everyone is showing kids who are trying to graduate high school homeless, you know, which is um, 
it's a season of life that's hard enough as it is without knowing where your next meal's coming from, where you're going to sleep that night. It's a really special event. Coming up on 20 years, we've got some things planned. We just had our 19th annual. And so we're already, the wheels are already spinning of what we're going to do next year to really celebrate that whole journey. What are Switchfoot's plans for the next chapter? How does the band want to carve their legacy? Yeah, that's a great question. I think going back through the beautiful letdown has really given all of us an appreciation of this journey we've been on, not just as a band, but as a community. There's a lot of people that have supported us along the way and given us a floor to crash on or come to to, to the show every time we've been in town. And, uh, you know, it really feels like a family. And that's something that I think is unique and special. We started doing these live streams during COVID that we've continued. And it's been this way to even further create this sense of community, you know, where once a month we, we gather and hang out and laugh about the journey we've been on. So it's, it's been a really special season for us of seeing our fans come together and create friendships with each other from around the world. And that's something that we're really excited about when you talk legacy. I think anytime I hear of friendships, marriages, families that were started around a Switchfoot show, that's like the, probably the biggest honor that we could ever have as a band is to, to see a bigger story being written around these songs. That's what gets me excited about what's next for us. And I think coming off of re-recording a bunch of songs, we're all really excited about recording new songs, you know? So we're just starting to have those conversations of what is the next albums? What does that look like? What do we want to sing about? We're definitely energized and blown away by the reception that the Beautiful Let Down, our version has had. And that's given us a lot of wind in our sails. Excellent, excellent. I do want to thank you so much for taking the time out to speak with us today. Absolutely been a fan of you guys for over 20 years. So having the opportunity to finally speak to you is awesome. Before we go, is there just anything else that you would like to add to the fans that are listening in today? I just want to say thank you. This is uh, a season, uh, you know, in our life as a band and individually where we're really um, reflecting on the beautiful journey that we've been on not just as a band, but with this whole community and so much thankfulness for all the highs and lows along the way and for everyone who's sung along with us. Not just the last 20 years since Beautiful Letdown, but 25 years since we've been a band. And yeah, just a lot of gratitude. Thank you so much. And that brings us to the end of this episode. We'd like to thank Tim for joining us today and for giving us a behind-the-scenes look into their career and the recording of The Beautiful Letdown. Please be sure to check out the re-recorded version of that record on your DSP of choice and look out for tour dates as they become available in your area. My name is Derek, and this has been another episode of the All Wire Podcast. Thanks for listening.